This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Ah, and welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler. Hang your cloak on a peg. Grab a stool and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told and you are among friends. Open lines this hour. You can ask me anything. Now, don't ask me for a veal recipe. This is the conspiracy show, after all. However, I will gladly entertain calls regarding political intrigue and subterfuge on the national or international stage. I welcome all calls about paranormal encounters, UFOs, things that go bump in the night. We just, of course, passed Halloween. So maybe you have a a ghost story that you need to uh, unburden yourself of. There I went and did it. I ended a sentence with a preposition. You know you're not supposed to do that, Owen? You never end a sentence with a preposition. And I just did it. However, uh, anyway, I think you get the drill. After about 20 years on the airwaves toiling in the conspiracy paranormal arena, uh, I think you you know how this goes. Open lines this hour. Uh, Say, how are you enjoying the return to standard time? So we gained an hour's sleep last night. I think it's a fad. I give it about six months. That, that's actually a Stephen Wright joke. And I dust that off, uh, well, every six months. And I'll tell it again March 2020 when we, re, we, we return to daylight savings time. Uh, so, as I say, the phone lines are open and available. And my technical producer tonight and every Sunday now, Owen Wolf. I will be handling the phones and he'll take your call. So be nice, be courteous, and he'll do his best to get you uh, on the air. All we need is your first name, where you're calling from, and a line or two about what you want to talk about. Now, here are the phone lines. If you're calling from the greater Toronto area, call 416-360-0740. Again, 416-360-0740. 0740. And if you're outside the greater Toronto area, anywhere in Canada or the United States, uh, I don't know about Mexico, Guatemala, I'm not sure about down there, but certainly in the continental United States uh, and here across Canada, you can call 1-866-740-4740. 1-866-740-4740. 
And let me just take a moment to uh, give you a heads up. What's coming up in hour two of this transmission? Author, paranormal researcher, Marie D. Jones will be here to discuss something called the time prompt phenomenon. And I'm guessing you know what it is. Maybe you've never heard it called that, a time prompt. Let me explain. Does this ever happen to you? You look over at the digital clock on your nightstand, the digital clock in your car. And whenever you happen to glance over, odds are it'll be the same numbers flashing back at you, like 1111, 1212. For me, it's 1010. What is that all about? It's like the universe is trying to get our attention. It's trying to tell us something. Well, anyway, that's the time prompt phenomenon. And Marie D. Jones is the co-author of 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon. Her co-author, Larry Flaxman, who is another fine paranormal researcher, he was to join me in this hour. And then she was going to take hour two. Marie was going to be with me uh, hour two. We were going to go full bore the two hours on The Time Prompt Phenomenon. But not too long before showtime, Larry uh, reached out to me and he has come down with a sore throat. That's going around. Anyway, sorry to hear Larry not feeling well, but I'm quite happy for the opportunity to do open lines with you instead. Again, 416-360-0740. That's in the greater Toronto area. And toll free from just about anywhere, one 740 4740 all right, let's uh, welcome Andrew from Mississauga, first order of business. Andrew, welcome aboard. How are you? I'm doing well, Richard. How are you? Terrific. Thank you. Perfect. Um, I just have one quick question. So it's been a while since I listened to you. I'm not sure if you ever covered it, but I would love to hear, let's say, an hour or half hour um, of like information on what's happening with uh, the Epstein thing that's happening in the States. I know uh, new information is coming out every, every, every day that like, you know, sort of sin- insinuates that... It's not really truthful with the reporting. You know, I would love to hear, let's say, in a month from now, two months from now, if, if you can, uh, like a, a timeline of the Epstein events. That would be really interesting to listen to, and I'm not sure if you would be down for that or not. I would be totally down for that, and it is time. We did, just after he was arrested, we did an hour, and uh, the gentleman, uh, the uh, the journalist who has sort of been all over that story for some time, his name escapes me, and uh, we could have him back on, but... You're right. I mean, so what has the thing that's happened most recently, of course, is now this pathologist that was hired by the Epstein family, uh, who was also invited to observe the autopsy. He is challenging the official uh, findings, which uh, it was ruled a suicide. And he's saying that that uh, based on these x-rays that were just released, based on what he witnessed in the autopsy, Uh, The way the crime scene was handled, that uh, he said it was definitely not a suicide, it was a homicide. And uh, that is not, you know, shocking to many people. There's one little caveat, though, with that, and that is that this particular pathologist uh, was hired by the Epstein family. And here's where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, If it was a suicide, and of course, you're, you're familiar with life insurance policies. There's always that clause in there. They don't pay out in the case of a suicide. So if it's a homicide, then there would presumably be a life insurance uh, payment. 
made presumably to the family. And here they have hired a pathologist who is saying it was a homicide. So that casts a little bit of um, doubt, makes one a little bit skeptical. However, on a gut level, I think most of us, in fact, I think when uh, we did that show, Owen, you, you may recall this, my technical producer on the other side of the glass, it seems to me that I predicted or my guest predicted shortly after Epstein's arrest that he would be suicided, which is a term we use in the conspiracy field, meaning he would be taken care of and it would be made to look like a suicide. Uh, but um, uh, so and, and here's the uh, another little interesting thing that's happening now. I was watching on Fox News and someone was being interviewed uh, on another matter. He was a veteran. He was um, it, it may have had to do with the, the the dog that was used in the Baghdadi raid. And they were talking about this particular breed of dog. And this veteran was on there talking with, I believe, uh, Waters. Uh, and um, at the end, he just sort of slid this in there at the very end. And he said, oh, and by the way, uh, Epstein did not commit suicide or something like that. And this this has gone viral. And now everyone is sort of doing this on media. Uh, so, I mean, what do you think, Andrew? Suicide, homicide? Um, well, he knew a lot of important people and a lot of important secrets. So that being said, you know, there'd be reasons for that to happen. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, I mean, imagine if he were put on the stand or given the opportunity to cop a plea or, you know, reduced sentencing in exchange for naming names of associates. I mean, the people that he would bring down, and we already know who some of those might be, uh, it would just be earth shattering, I would think. So I can't imagine why he would be allowed to live. But then I, you just look at the circumstances, you know, two security cameras out of order. That's always the case, right? It's always the case. The, the, the video cameras that were supposed to be operating in the Elma Tunnel the, in Paris where, where uh, Princess Diana uh, died. Uh, all of those video cameras were not operating that night. The video cameras uh, surrounded thousands of video cameras, security cameras surrounding the Pentagon that should have captured a very clear image of whatever flew into that building. Not operating, apparently, that night. And here we have the uh, the, the two security cameras um, watching over uh, who was at the time the most famous prisoner or infamous prisoner alive not operating that night. And then the two guards, mysteriously both, fell asleep. Uh, and he's taken off suicide watch like a week after he attempted suicide. It, it, I mean, it's, it, it really confounds me. Uh, Andrew, thank you so much for the call. And I'm going to take you up on that. I'm going to do a, a follow-up on that for sure. Have a good night, Richard. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Uh, yes, the Epstein case. Not many of us were surprised, I don't think. And of course, then there is the other story that, uh, that he's still alive. Presumably, I don't know, living in Qatar with Michael Jackson. I don't know. Uh, a, f a friend of mine, I'll, I'll name it, George Freund, who's been on the program a number of times and the host of a, a pretty popular podcast called Conspiracy Cafe. And he also blogs and he's a, a, a broadcaster he, uh, he steps in and fills in on the, uh, the power hour down in the United States. 
occasionally. And he sent me pictures of Epstein. Is it Epstein or Epstein? I don't, I don't know. I, can, I always get it mixed up. Anyway, uh, pictures before when he was alive and then after the, of the, um, the corpse. And he zeroed in on the earlobes. And I don't know what it is about earlobes. I guess they're very unique, like fingerprints. But he said they don't match. Whoever that was that they found dead in the cell was not Jeffrey Epstein. The earlobes don't match. And I never know what to make of those photographs. But there is that school of thought that Epstein is alive. But so many things in that case, again, don't add up. It has been strongly suggested that he did not make his money as a hedge fund manager. He was a hedge fund manager in name only. This guy was a multi-multi-billionaire. And the theory goes that he made, I think it's more than a theory now, I think it's been pretty much substantiated that he made his money a blackmailing foreign dignitaries, domestic dignitaries, business people, politicians, world leaders. It was a honey trap. The most odious, disgusting kind of of honey trap, utilizing young underage girls who were then videotaped in compromising positions with these world leaders, dignitaries, businessmen, etc. And then Jeffrey had the goods on them. Blackmail. The question is, who was behind Jeffrey Epstein? Who was protecting Jeffrey Epstein from prosecution? And it has also been suggested that he was an intelligence asset. And that original uh, deal, the prosecution in which he got off with a slap on the wrist. Yes, he was registered as a sex offender. But other than that, he was given a proverbial slap on the wrist. That had to have been approved at the highest level. This would have been under George W. Bush's watch. And whoever his district attorney uh, or whoever his um, attorney general was, I believe it was Gonzalez at the time. So were they protecting him because the information that they were getting or the, the, the blackmail you know, was used as leverage against other world leaders. Now the question is, will we ever know? Will we ever find out? All right, let's say hello to, um, who do we have here? Kevin in Toronto. Kevin? Hi, Richard. Hi there. Hi. Um, I was wondering if you could help me understand why the globalists, seem to be using Islam and Muslims to advance the globalist cause when they're so, like, everything that globalists believe is so in conflict with Islam. Like, does that make sense to anybody? Well, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that I would characterize it that the globalists are using uh, uh, Islam. What I would say is that on the left, we have very interesting... Uh, alliances, and those are kind of confusing to me. Yes. Um, but what I would say, just in, in very broad brush strokes, about what I would call the 
the, the progressive uh, movement and, and who's aligned against who and so forth. I, I just find it, and I'm not talk, I'm not talking about uh, Islam or any particular group here. I'm just saying the, the progressive agenda and the alliances that seem rather peculiar. Um, to me, they, it's an alliance of convenience because for the moment and for a myriad of reasons, they are all opposed to, I would say, Western civilization or the, the values of Western civilization. And so there may be some radical elements in those different groups who find a temporary or made a temporary truce, where at other times they might be uh, opposed to each other. Uh, but it's like, you know, you're, 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 you're looking at your opponent and you just pick up the, the nearest bludgeon that you can uh, without thinking too much, you know, about what the repercussions are. You're just picking it up because you need a bludgeon right away to attack your opponent. And so that, I think, in part explains some of the allegiances that we're seeing on the progressive left that don't necessarily make sense on the surface. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it's just uh, I'm thinking of all the, uh, uh, you know, the Muslims uh, coming into North America that uh, they seem to get uh, preferential treatment, if you will. Well, I want to, I, we need to be careful about that. Yes, yes, I understand. But I, I mean, uh, well, I, I think you, you, you can probably guess where I'm going. I'm, I'm not trying to be anti-Islam or anti-Muslim in any way. Uh, it's just that, as I say, the, uh, as you said, the progressives are so in favor of, like, gay marriage and um, uh, other things that Islam is in such uh, conflict with, and and I am too, and uh, it just as you say, it just seems like such an uneasy rely, uh, mm. alliance. Uh, I just can't make sense of it. Well, I'll give you an example how the how, for example, the migrants in Europe are being used. That that is um, that's about low wages, and. At a certain point, the European Union looked at their demographics and, and realized that they don't, they need more workers. And, uh, you know, meanwhile, the West is bombing the hell out of Libya and Iraq and Syria and driving uh, people out of those countries and into Europe. And, oh, look, what a convenience. We need, we need young, um, low wage workers and they arrive just in time. Coincidence? Uh, or am I being extremely cynical in connecting those dots? I think not. So you know what? It, to a certain extent, we're all being used and manipulated and and uh, uh, sort of placed in in opposition to one another. Where ne- where in some cases there ne- there need not be opposition, but we're being you know pitted against. This is what they they. <laughs> this is what is done in society. Um, when I say they, okay, the owners of the system, call them what you want. Uh, but they, they, it's divide and conquer. You pit one group against another. Um, and, uh, you know, we all suffer as a result. And yeah. many of those grievances that we, we have, I think, are sometimes they are manufactured and, uh, you know, part of the script. I don't know if that answers your question, Kevin, but that's how I read it, and that's okay. uh, for what it's worth. Uh, could I ask one more quick question, Richard? Sure. Just, uh, do you think that uh, Brexit is still going to happen? Oh, gosh. It just won't die, will it? I hope oh, not. Oh, um, 
you know what it part of me thinks the strategy is just to to exhaust one side to the point where they'll just capitulate and they just say all right fine we're staying in i can't take this anymore they're just uh it's like this battle of attrition or they're just kind of wearing people down it's like the water torture um you know we get our those that are that voted in favor of brexit and i you know if i were um, a, a, a citizen of Great Britain, I would have, I would have voted for Brexit. I, you know, I believe in the nation state, um, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I they, we get our, they get their hopes up, and then they're dashed, and then along comes Boris Johnson, and he seems like he, you know, he's going to get things done, and then you know, October thirty first comes and and uh, goes, and again. Uh, extended, extended, extended. I think people are getting so fed up. At a certain point, they're just going to say, I, I, I give up. No mas. I resign. Yes. I hope not, though. I, I mean, I hope Britain gets out and over the wall. And then, you know, they can, they can, they can show the other countries over in, in Europe that are contemplating it, that it can be done. Because immediately upon leaving, I think even a no deal would be the way to go because immediately upon uh, leaving the European Union, they'll get a free trade uh, agreement with the United States. Canada would probably sign on Mexico, the same. There'll be a number of countries willing uh, to do that kind of a deal with Britain. And once other countries that are on the cusp, I don't know whether it's a country like uh, uh, Hungary or, or Poland or Italy, maybe they might, they might see that and say, okay, we can do this too. And then, then it'll be a domino effect. But it's that that first nut is is proving very tough to crack. Uh, but we'll see. For sure, Kevin. Thank you for your call. Thanks, Richard. All right, we'll uh, take a quick time out. Come back and more of your calls. Open lines for this hour. And Marie D. Jones, the uh, author of or the co-author of Eleven Eleven: The Time Prompt Phenomenon, is coming up. Stay with us right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Next week on the program, the return of Canada's Edgar Casey, Dr. Douglas James Cottrell, the man with x-ray eyes. Not sure if you had a chance to listen to uh, Douglas on Coast to Coast uh, with me recently, and we conducted a remote viewing experiment. We used to do them on, on this program, and excuse me, we've done a couple on, on Coast to Coast, uh, and I would have to characterize both of them as smashing successes. And uh, this last one, yours truly, I have to tell you, after that uh, program, I was walking on air. I participated in the remote viewing experiment, as did all the listeners. Douglas was, I don't know, in London, Ontario, what is that, an hour and a half down the uh, the, the highway here, and had a, a, an object on his desk hidden from my view. He sent photos only to the uh, coast producer and the webmaster, and... Um, gave us some basic instructions, remote viewing protocols and so forth. And I actually named the object. I described it and named it. And there were a couple of listeners that were sort of close to, had some hits, as they say. Uh, but Douglas will be back on uh, this program next week. 
And we'll talk about that experiment. Maybe we'll conduct uh, an, another one here as well. Although I'm thinking, do I really want to push my luck? You know, like I'm two or three, three and O oh now. I'm three for three, I think, by my last count. Uh, however, we'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll speak with Douglas James Cottrell and also David John Oates because it's the second show of the month and he always joins us for uh, a spell in the first hour with some more reverse speech uh, clips. And I believe we're going to talk uh, Justin Trudeau, play some of his forward speech and then play it backwards and hear what his unconscious mind is really thinking. Oh, that'll be good. That'll be good. Uh, just before we get back to the phones, I wanted to, to mention this. There's a this nuclear activist. His name is Bruce Gagnon. And I'm not familiar with this gentleman, but I'm, I'm reading here online where he is suggesting that some UFOs may be black budget Space Force vehicles. A former Air Force veteran who served in Vietnam Gagnon is the coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space and has been involved in numerous campaigns and protests condemning the use of nuclear arms and the potential proliferation of weapons in space. He's particularly concerned about the so-called Space Force that U.S. President Donald Trump announced back in 2018, set up to prevent countries such as Russia and China from gaining a foothold before the United States. This new branch of the military could ultimately lead to the full-on space conflicts and the development of space-based weapon platforms in orbit around the Earth. In a recent interview with the Daily Star, I believe that's a Great Britain, Gagnon even suggested that some of the UFOs people have been seeing are actually prototype Space Force vehicles developed in secret on a black budget. Quote, I think it's possible. I spoke about the secret military budget, the black budget, and the development of advanced technologies, and it is possible that some of these so-called crafts are these new technologies, he said. Well, <laughs> I mean, we've been talking about that for, what, maybe 20 years? I would say probably the vast majority of sightings of what people think are alien-piloted craft are, in fact, secret military Black budget technology. Nothing new there. However, it's interesting that we have someone uh, like this gentleman, Bruce Gagnon, coming out and, and saying that. Gagnon even recalled witnessing a photograph of one such vehicle while attending a space militarization peace talk. It was the Northrop Grumman B-21 Raider, an upcoming long-range stealth bomber capable of delivering conventional and nuclear payloads. He noted that the image, which hasn't been made public, was like something out of space. I'm sure they're testing technologies for space warfare that we can't even imagine, but I know for sure, he said. Uh, well, again, I, uh, I quote the late Ben Rich, the uh, former director of Skunk Works, who said, we have out there in the desert, in hangars, technology that is 50 years beyond your wildest dreams. So I have no doubt, and I would say again, the vast majority of these crafts that people think may be extraterrestrial in origin are made in the good old USA. All right, let's go back to the phones. And uh, this time we'll say hello to Robert in British Columbia. Robert, good evening. Good morning. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Oh, hi, Richard. Hi there. Hi, thank you for taking my call. My pleasure. Big fan of your show and uh, I'm a first time caller. Welcome aboard, sir. Oh, thank you. Um, I just wanted to um, perhaps just talk to you or mention, get your thoughts on 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 what you might think about what we're hearing a lot of these days is, uh, you know, Agenda 21, UN Agenda 2030. Mm -hmm. 
um, I'm, I can say that in in my town here in Kelowna, boy, I'm really starting to notice a change in the development that really looks a lot like what they talk about um, in those documents. I'm, I'm sure you know about uh, sure stack, documents. That you, are yeah, you're, if, if you look at any development in any major center, you're seeing stacked housing with uh, several floors of residential above and then a floor of retail on the main floor. Uh, you're seeing increasingly, uh, you know, bike lanes, uh, light rapid transit, subways, uh, make uh, cities that are making it uh, less and less car friendly. Uh, they're trying to get us out of the cars. There are cars. They're trying to get us onto mass transit. Uh, they're increasing the density. They're calling them walkable neighborhoods. Uh, I mean, yes. aesthetically, uh, I don't object. And, and in principle, the idea uh, of utilizing, you know, our downtowns uh, in, a, in a better way, increasing the density. I don't have a problem with that. Listen, I, to be honest, I mean, I, I don't like the suburbs, uh, the idea of the suburbs. I just, because I, I'm one of these, and it's nothing against people living in there. I mean, I believe, you know, I'm a, I'm a big um, uh, a fan of, you know, being allowed to live where you want to live and live how you want to live. I'm just saying aesthetically, I'm not a big fan of suburbs. But if you if you want to live on a on a nice parcel of land with a two car garage and have you know uh, twenty five hundred square feet in a backyard and a barbecue, that's wonderful. Please, all more the more power to you. Uh, but I think there is something to Agenda Thirty or Twenty Thirty, which was previously called uh, UN Agenda uh, Twenty One. This blueprint for the twenty first century. And, you know, on the one hand, you could say, well, it's voluntary, you know, it's not mandatory, but it doesn't really matter because regional governments are adopting it. Every major center throughout North America, if you look at the official plan of that city, it's got, it has a name that that smacks of what we're talking about, the sustainable development. They'll call it uh, smart yeah. development. They'll call it sustainable this, smart that. And there's no question in my mind that they're, that these planners are making it very difficult for people to remain on the land in rural areas. Uh, they are making it increasingly difficult for landowners to use their land as they see fit. That's correct, yes. And that is having the effect, if the end game is to drive people out of rural areas, let's face it, if you can live, if you've got a couple of acres, you're, you can be pretty self-reliant. You can grow, you got your vegetable plot there, you can raise some chickens, you can live off the well water, heck, you got some land, you could put up a little, uh, some solar panels, you could get off the grid. Um, but if the idea is they want to herd us into the cities where we can be controlled and surveilled, Yes. This is the way to do it. Although, how efficient is it? I still see suburbs springing up all over the place. So I don't know how successful it's going to be. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, it makes me wonder why uh, originally it was Agenda 21 and then they've pushed it back to 2030. Maybe they've realized they, they, they're going to need another 10 years to implement things, uh, you know, more to how they how they like it. You know, but I'm wondering if it all kind of ties in to even as your previous caller was spe speaking about a little bit, all that mass uh, uh, migration that's moving on, the extreme resistance uh, about uh, uh, England leaving 
uh, Brexit, even though you know the citizens voted to let's let's leave, and you know it seems to be a lot of resistance from the EU to to allow them to go out, and uh, it, I just wonder if it's all tied in. It's it's the giant agenda, so to speak. Well, I think uh, for those that are like-minded that believe that there should be sort of an administrative state uh, that rules, technocrats that run the world because they're smarter and they know better than the great unwashed, which is you and me and, and everyone mm-hmm. else. They know better. And uh, and some of these people, I think, are, are well-intended. They, you know, they fear for the future of the planet and we can't allow the mob to run things. So democracy and populism and things like that are very irksome to them because they know better. And the nation state is, is something that, that has to be done away with. Um, and so now you noticed, like first th- what they do is they change the language or they attack the language. So all of a sudden now, if you talk about the nation state, uh, then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're some kind of a fascist. Um, you can't use the word, you know, proud nationalist because uh, because that equates with white nationalist. And of course, that's an, uh, you know, an uh, ugly beyond words segment of society. But they are a, a small and thankfully virtually powerless. Uh, you know, there aren't enough of them to, to, to fit in Iverwind Stadium. Is there still an Iverwind Stadium? I don't know. Anyway, there's not a lot of them. Thank God. There aren't a lot of, you know, white nationalists. Yeah. One is too many. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But... Um, the, the point is you can't now you can't say that you're a, you know a proud Canadian or you believe in the nation state see they attack the language and they move the goalposts over so now you can't call you know in, in New York City if you call someone uh, an illegal immigrant you can be fined or I believe jailed uh, I mean that's that can't stand a, a Supreme Court um, uh, challenge I, I can't think I mean the First Amendment Forget about it. I wonder, the I wonder if that's becoming a bit of new speak, as you might say. Oh, yes. Well. It has arrived. 1984 is here and then some. I've got to take a quick time out. Thank you for the call, Robert. I'm back with more Thank of the conspiracy show. My, call. my pleasure. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. I'll get back to the phone lines in a moment, but I wanted to uh, mention this. Uh, Spencer Fernando is someone uh, that I follow on Twitter and I enjoy his perspective and his writing as spencerfernando.com news and commentary and he writes uh the headline he writes trudeau government election law crushes free speech mimics legislation in authoritarian states and of course uh to my american listeners we just of course went through a a federal election up here in canada a couple of weeks ago uh the sub headline jail for misleading information jail for misleading information about politicians is something you would expect to see in a dictatorship, not a free country. How bad and dangerous is the Trudeau government's election law? Even the CBC is ripping into it. Uh, um, Spencer goes on to write, yes, I was surprised to see that even CBC has raising has been raising concerns about the law. With a report from Evan Dyer, even making the comparison between the law to what we see in authoritarian states, the law is the amended Section 91 of the Elections Act, and here's what it says. 
Elections Act 91, um, subsection 1, I guess. No person or entity shall, with the intention of affecting the results of an election, make or publish during the election period, A, a false statement that a candidate or prospective candidate, the leader of a political party or a public figure associated with a political party, has committed an offense under an act of parliament or a regulation made under such an act, or under an act of the legislature of a province or a regulation made under such an act, or has been charged with or is under investigation for such an offense, or B, a false statement about the citizenship, place of birth, education, professional qualifications or membership in a group or association of a candidate, a prospective candidate, the leader of a political party, or a public figure associated with a political party. And the penalty for violating the law? Up to five years in jail and or a fine of $50,000. Think about that for a second, Fernando Spencer writes. Five years in jail for a tweet or post or statement about a politician that the government deems to be, quote, end quote, misleading. Here's what Evan Dyer, CBC, wrote about it. No charges have yet been brought under Section 91 relating to the 2019 campaign, uh, but international experience shows that such laws have become a weapon for governments looking to silence online dissent. Egypt and the Gulf states have aggressively prosecuted social media users over critical comments using laws ostensibly intended to prevent disinformation. It can't be emphasized, Spencer continues, it can't be emphasized enough that if even if CBC is comparing this law to what we see in authoritarian states, then imagine how badly, it, how bad it really is. And the law has already had an impact with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation saying they were more wary about sharing things on social media during the election campaign. This is called libel chill, folks, but worse. Of course, that's exactly what the liberals want. They want Canadians to be afraid to criticize the government, afraid to slam Trudeau, and afraid to speak out at all. Uh, That's why we must demand that this law be repealed and spread the word about how dangerous and authoritarian it is. As I've said many times, the Trudeau government is moving in a more and more authoritarian direction, and we can't just hope that it will stop on its own. The Canadian people need to demand that it stop, and we need to demand that our free speech and free expression is restored. Again, that's uh, Spencer Fernando, whom I follow on Twitter, and uh, you can read his dispatches at spencerfernando.com. So there you go, an amendment to the Election Act, uh, and uh, it, that does, on the face of it, sound quite disturbing. All right, let's say hi to uh, Joseph in Mississauga. Joseph, welcome. Well, uh, good evening, uh, Richard. Hi there. Uh, so I, I just wanted to ask you, I was just listening the other night to uh, Bill Gates. Uh, he was in a, some sort of conference and that, and he mentioned something to the effect that uh, Donald Trump asked for his advice on whether uh, he should run a commission on vaccines. Now, unless I'm mistaken, I, I've never heard of uh, Bill. I know Bill Gates is quite the authority in software and whatnot. But have you ever heard of him getting like some sort of degree in epidemiology or anything like this? Like, where does he come off? Well, the authority um, on vaccine. This is the man that none of his children are vaccinated. Well, I don't know. Do we know that for sure? I don't know that. Yeah, none of his children have been vaccinated. How do we know that? 
well, it's been, there's many instances where they're, they're asked this, and he says none of his children have been back. Well, I don't know if that's the case. However, okay, well, nevertheless, right. what, what does he know about it? I don't know. An authority on yeah. vaccines is my okay. question. Right. I don't know that he is. I doubt it, that he's an authority. Well, he's, he, the way he's brought across is all of a right. sudden he moves from Microsoft all of a sudden to become an authority. Well, I know he's, like, he's all, okay, let me just, Joseph, if I could, if I could jump in and answer your question, Joseph. Yeah, uh, just let, let me have a, it is my show after all. If you want to ask me a question, I'd be delighted to answer it. Uh, but if I could get in an edge, a word edgewise, uh, he, I know he's incredibly interested in, in vaccinations and, and the, the bill and his, his wife's name who escapes me. I, I apologize. I don't want to give her a short trip because she's a, obviously a partner in this, uh, the Gates Foundation. Uh, and they give away billions of dollars and, one of the areas that they are very concerned about is in infant mort- uh, mortality rates, and they're trying to Im- improve that in developing world in the developing world. And so, um, they're very interested in vaccination programs uh, t- to try and improve uh, mor- infant mortality rates. So that's why he's interested in it. Now, what's what's also interesting is that. Um, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. He's still talking. I had to pot him down. I'm sorry, because I, I, otherwise I can't do a show. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. apparently uh, met with, uh, with Trump shortly after his election in 2016. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has been very vocal about uh, vaccination injuries and the need to investigate uh, or perhaps even uh, conduct a, a congressional hearing to, to actually talk about this, the efficacy of certain vaccinations and the safety of certain vaccinations. Uh, and it, it has been suggested that perhaps Robert F. Kennedy Jr. has Donald Trump's ear on this matter. So I don't know if that's what Bill Gates is talking about. Um, however, it is interesting. Wouldn't it be fascinating if we had a congressional hearing and we had, for example, members of the CDC subpoenaed uh, to talk about the safety and efficacy of certain vaccines. Uh, that's about all I have to say on that matter. But, Joseph, I'm sure you're still talking and you have a lot to say. We'll do it. We'll pick it up another time. But thank you for the call nonetheless. And uh, let's say hi to KC, who is in Connecticut. Hello, KC. Welcome. Hey, uh, how are you doing today? I'm well. Yeah, hey, so I just wanted to, to follow up. I was listening to this person uh, be very worried that, you know, this kind of density stuff is to try to kick people off rural land. Um, and it's really not, uh, you know, I, I think it's really there to build people into, uh, consumerism. So, you know, they, they, they really want you to kind of be living above the store so that if you want to go buy something, you can just like go downstairs and get it. You know, it's not like you have to go, drive to wherever to do, you know, and, and, and buy something. So, um, you know, and then it, it, on top of it, I'm sure they're really trying to finance the new, uh, uh, you know, housing so that, uh, you know, you kind of get trapped in kind of that, that type situation there too. So that's, well, I think more, more of the strategy versus kind of trying to get people off rural land. Well, I, I've talked to, I did a, a TV episode. Actually, it, was, it hasn't been broadcast as yet. We're hoping maybe to do a season five of The Conspiracy Show. And in fact, I just finished scripting 
an, an episode on UN Agenda uh, 21, or as it now is referred to as Agenda 2030. And as part of that, you know, doing some research and talking to landowners, particularly up in near San Jose and, and uh, in California. Uh, and many of them tell a similar story about th- the regulations preventing them from doing what they want on their land, from developing their land, the private property. And it, and the takeaway for me was that pri- private property rights are under siege in certain quarters. Uh, and again, if you look at the names of, if you, if you bother and you go and you, you find out what is the official plan for your county or your, your region, uh, they all they all have this these buzzwords sustainable this and smart this calgary toronto vancouver san francisco you name it uh and yes ostensibly the, these are volunteer uh these are um this is a volunteer no you know it wasn't um it wasn't a, you know part of a treaty or anything uh, in the united states they they didn't sign on the federal government didn't sign on, but again, the state governments and the city and county governments are all buying into this. And um, as I said to that caller previously, yeah, I don't think it's being very successful in driving people off the land. But you, if you talk to people who live in rural areas, uh, you know, they are being told you can't use the water on your own property. Uh, or a certain area will be declared, uh, you know, some sort of a habitat for some, I don't know, rare species of frog. And so you can't cut a tree down here and on your own property. This is happening. There's no question it's happening. Uh, will it be successful? I'm not sure. Casey, thank you for the call. We'll uh, yeah. continue with open yeah, lines no, on the I other like side that. right here on The Conspiracy Show. Thank you. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Paranormal researcher, author, Marie D. Jones is waiting in the wings. She'll join us after the top of the hour to talk about uh, the time prompt phenomenon. And um, for me as a Basically, in a nutshell, <clears throat> excuse me, if you if you find yourself always looking over to a digital clock, I don't know. I, and this may be a phenomenon that is restricted to the digital age. I don't know that, you know, people were necessarily finding this when they relied on sundials <laughs> or analog clocks. Uh, but in the digital age, certainly, how often does this happen to you? You turn, you look at the digital clock and it's it's 11.11 or 10.10, which is the, the number the numbers, the sequence that haunts me and follows me wherever I go. Does that happen to you? 12-12. What is that all about? Maybe it you know, could be 11-22 or something. I don't know. But the sequence, this mysterious sign, is it the universe trying to get our attention? Uh, anyway, Marie Jones has uh, co-authored a book called 11-11, which is apparently the most common time prompt that people see 1111 the time prompt phenomenon and she'll join join us uh, shortly to uh explore that and we'll try and unravel that mystery as best we can in the uh, the time provided uh I, I wanted to bring this to your attention too and uh i don't know how many of you have uh this uh, amazon echo device in your house alexa 
Owen, do you have that? I have an Alexa, yeah. You have an Alexa? Uh, well, check this out. Um, police in Florida are investigating whether they have stumbled on a silent witness to a possible murder, and they're trying to get the truth from her, quote, end quote. Sylvia Galva Crespo, 32, was killed by a spear, oh, uh, to the chest at home in uh, Hallandale Beach, Florida, north of Miami in July, which her husband, Adam Crespo, 43, has portrayed as a mysterious accident. But police believe the Amazon Echo smart speaker device in their home, known as Alexa, because of the common wake word used to activate them, may have heard and recorded something relevant during the fatal altercation. When the couple argued after a night out, the Sun Sentinel reported, it's believed that evidence of crimes, audio recordings, captured the attack on victim Sylvia Crespo that occurred in the main bedroom, may be found on the server, maintained by or for Amazon. Police wrote in a legal filing, Adam Crespo is charged with second-degree murder. We did receive recordings, and we are in the process of analyzing the information that was sent to us. The Hallandale Beach Police Department spokesman, Sergeant Pedro Abut, told the Sun-Sentinel, when police were called at the home in July, they found Sylvia Galva Crespo bleeding profusely with a friend of the woman who had been uh, out with the couple trying to save her life. Adam Crespo said the spear had snapped during the altercation and the 12-inch blade had somehow pierced his wife's chest. He pulled the blade out, hoping it was not too bad, but she died. The friend said she heard the couple arguing but did not know what it was about. Investigators now wonder if there was any chance Alexa was awoken at any time during the incident and recorded anything useful to getting to the bottom of the woman's gruesome death. Items using smart technology, often known as the Internet of Things, do have a certain capacity to eavesdrop in some circumstances and have come up in criminal cases before. Crespo is free on $65,000 bond and denies the offense. The case continues. My word. Uh, all right. Let's uh, say hello to Rochelle here in Toronto. Hi, Richard. Hi there. I wanted to ask you if you thought about doing a program on Monterey Pop because so many of the people died in such a short duration of time. The Monterey Pop Festival of 1967. Yes. You're talking about Jimi Hendrix and, oh, and Janice. Janice and Kent Heat, Al Wilson from Kent Heat. Oh, Heath. that's right, right. What year did he die? Was it around 70, he, 71? He, he, I think he died uh, 70. And was he part of the 27 Club? Uh, he was. Hmm. He, he died right before Kent Heat were going to go on tour. Right, right. And uh, let's see, who else was at the Monterey Pop There's just Festival? so many, and then... It was a little bit later, but Mama Cassellyad and Keith Moon. Right. Jefferson, just so was, many. Uh, Jefferson Airplane appear there? Yes. Right, right. Just so many. Um, I, I mean, I've done shows. I had a, a podcast called The Rock and Roll Twilight Zone. Right. And uh, I haven't done an ep- I didn't do an ep- episode exclusively about the Monterey Pop Festival, but I, I've, I've talked about the 27 Club uh, with the, my my dear friend, the late R. Gary Patterson, on a right. number of occasions. Um. And I, I did do an episode on, um, oh, he was the Acid King, the guy that provided the acid for not only the Grateful Dead, he was their producer, uh, Owsley Stanley. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, um, it's been rumored that he was, you know, connected with the CIA. And, right. uh But who knows? Uh, but, you know, that's, that's interesting. I, I certainly would be willing to delve into that. Well, that would be cool. Okay, Rochelle, thank you so much. I appreciate the, you, uh, the tip. The Monterey Bye-bye. Pop Festival. 1967. Ah, the summer of love. All right. 
Well, Marie Jones is coming up next. I hope you'll be along for that ride. Just a quick reminder. Get on up to strangeplanet.ca. That's my website, strangeplanet.ca. Do a, uh, a quick register on the website. Just register. Takes a couple of seconds. Type in your email and then you get, um, you get my, uh, my newsletter, my free monthly newsletter, Inner Sanctum. Uh, and it just drops right into your mailbox. Easy as that. Inner Sanctum. Again, strangeplanet.ca. All right, back with uh, the time prompt phenomenon in a moment. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi. Your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker. Your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to each and every one of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto. Howdy to those of you tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey, you listening to the live audio stream at zoomerradio.ca or on my YouTube channel, Strange Planet. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid you the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Now, before we get rolling here with the time prompt phenomenon, I just want to give a warm and appreciative shout out uh, to a couple of people. Denny Bladell and Kirk Shamel, or uh, Shamel, who are members of my loyal Star Chamber supporters at patreon.com forward slash strange planet, patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Denny and Kirk Uh, Thanks for your uh, continued support. It means a lot, believe me. Thank you to you both. All right. All over the world, people report seeing number patterns throughout their day, whether on digital clocks or restaurant bills or even bus benches. Many see the same pattern and wonder, what is this trying to tell me? What is this numeric sequence saying? There are those who see 1111 or 111, or 222, 333, and so on, 1212, 1234, and possibly the most popular and oft-reported number sequence, 1111. What's it all mean? Well, hopefully, over the next hour, we'll be able to at least partially unravel the mystery. Marie D. Jones is a best-selling author of nonfiction and fiction, and a screenwriter, producer with her own company, Where's Lucy Productions. She's appeared on television and on radio all over the world and has hundreds of credits writing for magazines, guest blogs, reviews, short stories, online articles, and gift books. She's lectured widely on the paranormal, unknown anomalies, cutting-edge science, metaphysics, and human consciousness. And she is the co-author of 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon, Mysterious Signs, Sequences, and Synchronicities. Marie Jones, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. It's been a while. How are you? It has. It's good to be back, Richard. I'm I'm doing good. Now, uh, I remember this, this is, I believe, this is a second edition, right? This, uh, I remember when this book came out a few years ago, and you've, you've updated it and revised it. Well, oh, yeah. So it came out a little before 2012. Uh, because a lot of the eleven uh, eleven references at the time actually had something to do with the whole Mayan calendar two thousand and twelve thing, which we can get into a little bit. So uh, the publisher 
Recently, uh, New Page Books was acquired by Red Wheel Wiser Press, and they took all of the books that I have written in the past and that I had written with Larry Flaxman, and they decided that they're going to start revising and re-releasing some of the more popular titles. Well, the original 1111 was probably the most popular title that uh, I had written with Larry Flaxman. It really was just um, a big success at the time, which is really kind of interesting because the publisher approached us with the idea. And up until then, I really had no idea there was such a thing as this 1111 time prompt phenomenon. So it was kind of fun to do the research and learn about uh, you know, all the craziness that was going on with these time prompts and especially with the 11-11. Right. And I was kind of joking, um, well, only half joking about, you know, whether is whether this time prompt phenomenon and I, I mean, the success of the book is, be, you know, you touched a nerve. It's one of those things. It's it's like the Mandela effect that almost everybody has a story about the Mandela effect. And I think m- most people have a sequence of numbers that sort of follow them around. But I'm, I, I was joking before, is this a product of the digital age? Because, you know, I, I, I can't imagine it would have been as apparent when we all had analog clocks or, you know, even before that with sundials, for example. Well, yeah, I don't know about sundial, the, the sundial generation. <laughs> <laughs> but my own agent, Lisa Hagen, told me that back in the 1970s, she and friends of hers used to talk about seeing these time prompts. So I think they've been around for decades, but definitely they're, they become more popular with more different, uh, different methods of seeing number prompts. I mean, you know, before we had to look at our watches, uh, and now we have digital everything and cell phones and, and our gadgets that are always on. And so we notice it more, not only that, but we have this monster called social networking So now when someone notices it, the first thing they do is go post on Facebook or Instagram, hey, it's 11-11, and it spreads like wildfire. So I definitely think um, it's it's been around for a long time. It's definitely increased in popularity. But 11-11, interestingly enough, the height of the importance of that particular time prompt actually came from the idea that, you know, the, the, the world was supposed to either end or have some kind of major transformation on December 21st, 2012. Well, we all know that the world didn't end, thankfully. But what was interesting is that we found that there was a direct connection with the, the, the Greenwich Mean Time that the winter solstice on that day was supposed to begin. And that was at 11, 11 a.m. Ah. So, you know, a lot of people that are into the whole ascension and the transformation of the collective human consciousness really felt like something big was going to happen at that time. Moving into the I, age of Aquarius. Exactly. Now, did we or didn't we? I, you know, there's a lot of people that will say that they had sort of an individual awakening. And I certainly think that that's important because if you have enough of those, you'll get a tipping point, you know, where the consciousness of humanity will shift. But I would have to say that by looking at the news (laughs) and the things that are going on in the world lately, 
I don't know that we have quite hit that tipping point yet. I think a lot of people had a personal transformation that day because they may have been expecting to have one. And that really ties in with these number sequences. You know, are we expecting to see them? Have we trained our brains to see them? Have we attached importance to them that really isn't there? There's so many different theories and questions that go on with these number sequences and time prompts. Um, But, you know, we obviously the world didn't end, thankfully. But a lot of people feel like, well, gee, the world didn't ascend either to some fifth dimension level. Or if it did, very few people are, have been made privy to it. And the, the sequence, is it always four numbers? No, not at all. In fact, mine, all my life, has been 333. Three, three. And I still, every night, I wake up at 333. At and I wake up and I just sort of, you know, chuckle. It's like, oh, here we go again. Um, but I've been, I've been having that number show up on sales receipts, the clock, um, you know, just random places. And I know for other people, 444, 1212, 111. It's any number sequence that is, that, that, that has a real pattern to it. I mean, somebody might say, well, I see 5983 all the time. Well, that's unusual. Um, I think our brains like to attach or latch onto very simple patterns. So eleven, right. eleven. My gosh, you know what? What's what's better than seeing four ones on your clock? It's just like whoa. <laughs> now, do the numbers? Do the numbers have? Have you discovered personal meaning to that person outside of the actual time prompt? So, for example, um, you know, in your in your case, three, three, three. Uh, you know, did you live? And an address that had 333, uh, and then so that it has personal meaning, or is it just you're followed around for unexplicable reason by these number sequences? You know, it's so funny that you say that because um, to me, the number three, the number three is the number of perfection. It is the unification of dualities. It's it just the perfect number. And three threes, of course, is even more perfect. Three, three, three adds up to nine. And I never thought of this until you just now said this, but my childhood home was 72 Captain Shanky Drive in Garnerville, New York. I know. (laughs) It was a real person. He was a real, I know we, we just got made fun of so much for growing up on that street. And then we found out he was a real person. Uh, but seven and two, 72 was my house number. And that added up to nine. And I just now, thought, huh, because I I had a great childhood, you know, Mm -hmm. I just, it was so filled with, uh, I mean, I was writing and I was just so into science and, and the stars and planets. And uh, I was just one of those kids that was always in awe of everything. And I just now made that connection, but here's the thing. So there's two sides to this fence. (laughs) The one side is that these time prompts are meant to bring us very quickly into the present moment. So when you see something unique, like 1111 or 444 or 1212, you notice it because it's it's a pattern. It's not a bunch of random numbers. 
And what that does is it brings you into the present moment. We spend so much of our lives worried about things that happened in the past or stressed out and anxious over things that are coming in the future, that these time prompts snap us back into the present. And what a lot of people told us and what a lot of people have told me over the years, because this book never really went away, I always have people messaging and emailing about it, is that in that present moment when they have they they see or they notice that number sequence, a lot of times synchronicities will occur. And, you know, maybe they've been looking for a job and in that moment they'll get an email or or they'll come up with a brilliant idea to contact such and such a company and and it'll turn into a wonderful job. And so and other people ascribe meaning in that they are really into interpreting time prompts as uh, angelic messages. Other people are into numerology, so they look at the master number. Say 1111 is your time prompt, well, that adds up to four. And then they interpret what the four means. And so there's so many different ways that people ascribe some spiritual meaning or personal meaning to it. Mm. Uh, Now, the more... Oh, go ahead. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I was I was just going to offer my my um my sequence, which is ten ten, and um in fact I may have told you the story the last what, years ago when we we talked about what, the book I can't remember but uh so ten ten my uh, my my twin boys were born October tenth that's the tenth month the tenth day oh they oh were, my gosh they okay were, they were born <laughs> well the first one came out at ten minutes after ten. In the morning. Oh. And mom and dad, that's me and uh, the mighty Aphrodite, we met at a radio station with the call numbers 1010. Oh, wow. And of course, whenever okay, I look. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah, whenever I look at the clock, it's 1010. So then those numbers, I mean, they have meaning to me. Um, so I'm not sure whether now I'm just, I'm noticing them more or they're following me around. Anyway, uh, that's. Well, that's, they, you know, they do have meaning too. And I think that. A lot of people say, well, I don't really know what it's trying to tell me. And the thing is that there are people that know very consciously what what's going on. They know what the associations are with their particular time prompt or or number sequence. And others have no clue. And I always say, you know, it could very well be that your subconscious, because numbers are symbols, they're symbolic. So your subconscious could totally get the message. But it's not time yet for you to become consciously aware. Hmm. So don't worry, don't stress out if you're, you know, seeing five, 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 twenty-five times a day, and you're like, oh my god, what the heck? Who's trying to tell me? What are they trying to say? Trust that your subconscious gets what's going on, and that when the time is right, it will be revealed to you on a conscious level. Uh, now the other side of the story is a little more boring. But I don't believe in uh, only showing one side of the story. So the other thing is this. The way that our brains are made, if we see something once, big deal. If we see something twice and it's the same, like 11-11, we go, oh, oh, I saw that yesterday. How funny. If we see it a third time, literally what we have done is create a new neural pathway hmm. for 11.11 to now start appearing all the time. And we, we know that this happens in a lot of different situations, like 
always like to talk about, you know, you go to buy a car and you decide you're going to get this really bizarre color. A friend of mine just bought a Toyota Corolla and the color is like, oh gosh, a mahogany spice. You know, it's like this really <laughs> weird, I've never seen a color like that. It's, it's like a red with caramel tones in it. It's hmm. really, really pretty. And I've never seen a car like that before. But now that I saw her car, I'm seeing them all, all over the place. Right, right. So, I mean, it's not really that it's important to me, but it, suddenly my perception was made aware of this, right. you know, mahogany spice color. And now I'm seeing it all the time. And this happens to us all the time. Until something becomes important to us, we don't notice it. Our right. brain doesn't have it. Well, that's that, that's a more pros- yeah, that's a more prosaic explanation. But to me, it's not boring. I mean, the idea that we are creating these new neural pathways because we see something, let's say, you know, three times, four times, five times. To me, that's that's fascinating too. But it's not you know, it's not necessarily an either or proposition, is it? Because just because the prosaic explanation fits in some right. cases doesn't rule out. It's like those experiments. I think they were in, they were in uh, Switzerland where they were able to induce an out of body experience by, by uh, stimulating certain parts of the, uh, the, the cerebral cortex. So to me, I'm thinking, okay, that doesn't disprove a genuine out of body experience just Absolutely. because, you can, just because you can produce it in a lab. So I think it's the same here. Uh, well, yeah. And I think, you know, there, you have to wonder, well, why are, certain people seeing certain number sequences if that were the case why would we not all be seeing and a lot of people do and a lot of people think that the numbers like 11 11 that millions of people are seeing um and i don't think that's an exaggeration to say that all over the world i will bet you there are millions of people seeing it um you know it 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 does have some meaning well and patterns do have meaning sure Absolutely, they do. Uh, and as you point out in the book, the number 11 um, is mathematically special. Can you just kind of walk us? We just have a couple minutes here before the break. But why is the number 11, mathematically speaking, so special? Oh, gosh. If, uh, when any string of ones is multiplied by itself, it, it's a palindrome. So when you have 11 times 11, it's 121. Uh, when you add on more 11s, it'll be 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, uh, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. So you're always going to get a palindrome out of it. So it gets really spooky because you could have 20 11s multiplied by 20 11s, and you're going to get a, a gigantic palindrome. It's a really interesting number. There's a lot of uh, really cool things about numbers that I learned, uh, and I never really liked numbers before. <laughs> No, it is, it is fascinating. Yeah. Patterns are everywhere. Well, as you say, you were talking about, you know, three being the number of, of perfection and, and uh, we're 11 uh, with this palindrome. It's, it's pure. It's symmetrical. Um, so what else? Almost do, like yeah. somebody planned out all of this, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, I have to tell you, my father was the one that kind of got me into really doing a lot of research into the, he believed numbers were paranormal. He said, they're so mysterious and intricate and sophisticated that you would begin to think that God is a mathematician. And you really do get a sense of that when you look at some of the 
interesting patterns that are created with with specific numbers. Hmm. We put some fun stuff in the back of the book that shows that too. Some of the trivia, but um, you know, people think of numbers in terms of oh, I got to balance my checkbook or do my taxes. We really don't understand that mathematics goes way beyond just the numbers that we deal with in our daily lives. Right. It's uh, some have suggested that it is sort of the the architecture of the matrix. Yes. Uh huh. The language of the universe, too. Right. All right. Well, we'll we'll drill down on a couple of these ideas when we come back. Marie Jones is the co-author of Eleven Eleven: The Time Prompt Phenomenon, and we'll open up the phone lines as well. What numbers, what mysterious sequence follows you around? And what do you think it's trying to tell you? 416-360-0740, 416-360-0740 in the greater Toronto area, toll free from just about anywhere. 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Marie Jones is with us for the full hour, and we're discussing the time prompt phenomenon, and hopefully we'll get some of your stories in here before we dim the lights and say goodnight, good morning. Um, I wanted to ask you about Carl Jung, and uh, we're, we're familiar with sort of Jungian symbology and, and um, metaphors in the mind and dreams and so forth. What did he, did he have anything to say about numbers in this way? Does, did, it, did it speak about the subconscious mind? Well, that's one of the more spiritual aspects that I think we can look at numbers as being archetypal. Um, obviously, he, he wasn't really big into mathematics as a student. I know he had a lot of trouble with them. But his um, his writings and his teachings about archetypes really come into play where the time prompt phenomena, the sequences, the patterns, again, they may not be understood by us consciously, but the collective unconscious, which was the which is the realm of archetypes, may actually be where we understand what they're trying to tell us and how certain numbers can have a certain meaning. Uh, so again, we may not understand things on the surface, but definitely our human psyche is affected by numbers, what the numbers stand for. He believed that each number had a different meaning or stood for something in particular. For example, two was the polarity of opposites or duality, which of course we all we all know. Three was a movement towards a resolution, which, like the the perfection of number three being the unification of duality, is a very archetypal and symbolic thing. So that's one of the things that I really enjoyed is, because I wrote a, a book much later called The Power of Archetypes, and I remember writing the book, and all of a sudden it occurred to me, oh, I forgot to include numbers. Mm. Numbers are truly symbolic. Our birthdays are symbolic. Our ages, you know, we we ascribe meaning to uh, midlife crises or, you know, the age of menopause or adolescence. And uh, so definitely that's where that comes into play. The idea that even 
beyond our personal subconscious. There may be a deeper part of our psyche where we're all connected. It's a universal uh, aspect of, of who we are as human beings where we understand these symbols. And it doesn't matter who you are, or where you come from, or where you live. They are universal. So, a, you know, somebody in China or Cambodia or New Jersey will get the symbolism behind the number three, the number one, the number two, the number seven. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. Hmm. The other thing that, uh, well, there's so many things that I found interesting in, in the book, but one is this this small patch of neurons uh, <gasps> yes. that's responsible for giving <laughs> us this, you call it the number sense. It's almost like the sixth sense, except not seeing dead people, but it's responsible for numbers. Well, not only that, but the, we have this part of the brain, the reticular activating system, that uh, I am just so excited about this because I think this could apply to a lot of paranormal research in that our brains, we, you know, we, our brains are bombarded with so much information. And even when we, you know, if, our, if we're given a number sequence and our brains have to try to recall it, you know, our memory can only go so far we've got this little cluster of neurons that does the job for us. They'll hear or see a sequence and they'll be able to repeat it back to us. But there's a limit to that. You know, it seems to me the sweet spot is about seven numbers that we can remember, like a phone number. <coughs> That's right. about the area code. Um, and then beyond that, we have a lot of difficulty. So it seems like our brains are really built to uh, have a lot of recall for smaller number groupings. Now, the reticular activating system, what really excited me about this, this plays into everything from the law of attraction to 11.11, the time prompt phenomenon, and possibly to paranormal phenomenon. Our brains have a, 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 a small cluster of fibers and neurons near the brain stem that literally filter out of, you know, billions and billions of bits of information that we have coming at us every day. They filter it down to a very, very small amount that we are then going to perceive and respond and react to. And, and that small amount is what's important for our day-to-day -day survival. This is a very primitive survival-based uh, mechanism in the brain. But if you give the RIAS something new to look for, something new to allow in through the filter, you will then begin seeing it all the time. So that's where the whole time prompt thing comes into play. Like I said earlier, you see 11.11 once, big deal. You see it twice, coincidence. You see it three, four times, your RIS kicks in, and it's now going to create, your brain will literally now seek out that pattern. It's important now. And you're going to be seeing it everywhere. It's now a part of the little it's and bits of information that you're allowed to perceive every day because your RAS is filtering out all the junk that it doesn't think you need. So <clears throat> what that leads to the question, what is it filtering out? All of these 
billions of bits of information. What does that include? That because it doesn't have to do with our day-to-day survival needs, we're not seeing it. We're not perceiving it. It could be right at the tip of our noses. Right. So that was something new that was added into the book that absolutely fascinates me for a number of reasons. You know, people say, well, the law of attraction is the RAS. Basically, you're telling the RAS, hey, listen, I need you to go out and look for money-making opportunities for me, or I need you to go look for a boyfriend for me, and it will now open that filter a little wider uh, to allow that information to come through, whereas before it was filtering it out because it didn't think you needed it. So I think you alluded to this earlier that it, it, it may, might explain a lot of paranormal activity in that uh, this, this collection of neurons that's responsible for really pattern recognition, it, it may find, because we like to make sense of the world, we need to seek out patterns, but sometimes we see things you know, you look at a piece of wallpaper and someone says, well, there's Jesus. And someone says, I don't see it. But then once you see right, it, you can't not yeah. see it, right? So is right, that the same exactly. thing? Is that the same thing? It, it, I think it is. I think, you know, our brains naturally want to create order out of chaos. So and it's funny because when I was little, I remember looking, my grandmother had this really bizarre uh, wallpaper that, I, it just was like all these weird flowers and swirls and I would stare at it while I was trying to go to sleep at night because we used to stay overnight and I could see faces and little dogs and sheep. And so, you know, we refer to that as matrixing or pareidolia. I don't think I'm pronouncing that correctly, by the way, but it is the brain looking at something chaotic and trying to find order in it. Um, and you know, it, it, the order may or may not really be there, but we just have such a powerful desire to do that, that our brains will automatically look for order. And, and with the RAS, if, if there, there could be ghostly activity all around us. And I love the RAS might explain why you might see something. Let's say we go to a haunted location like the Queen Mary. And, and this actually happened to me. I was standing next to someone who was seeing something, and I'm not seeing a thing. Now, is that because that person's RAS was more open to that and allowed it to come through the filter, and mine was just like blocking it out? Right, right. If we can somehow, you know, what is it that we're not perceiving? Because we don't have a need to know. Is it like this This is a need to know basis that we're operating on here? So there's all this stuff going on that we're not seeing, we're not hearing, we're not sensing. Animals obviously can see and hear, uh, you know, other parts of light and sound spectrum that we can't. Hmm. But what if our RAS suddenly is activated or prompted? to begin to apply importance to something like that. Then we, then we see it all the time. Right. So right. I'm always, I always like to look for physiological things that are going on in our bodies that might have something to do with why one person will see an apparition and the person standing next to them doesn't see a thing. It's, it's, it's funny you mentioned that. I have a, a caller. I had an open line segment in the first hour, and I expected to, to hear from this gentleman. He didn't call, but he often does. 
He lives just east of Toronto, and every time he calls, he has seen another UFO. It's almost a daily occurrence. Oh. <laughs> and I mean, I've never seen one in my life, and I, but I, I, you know, my career is talking about them. I've never seen one. Uh, Same here. <laughs> and, and and someone, um, I think it was Grant Cameron who suggests, you know, he's talked to different, um, you know, people who supposedly were members of Majestic Twelve, and they say that if you really want to understand the UFO uh, phenomenon, you have to understand uh, psychic ability, ESP, things like that, and. I don't, you know, we're all, this is sort of all related or not, but, um, uh, you say, why do some people see them in this case on a daily, a daily, uh, basis and some can go a lifetime without seeing them. When, when we come back, I, I want to talk about, um, certain mathematicians and theoretical physicists and whether maybe they have a deeper understanding of what's going on here. We'll do that when we come back. Marie Jones, co-author of 1111, the time prompt phenomenon right here on the conspiracy show. Don't go away. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Marie Jones talking the time prompt phenomenon. And you know it. There is a sequence of numbers that follows you around or you, you find it or it finds you. What does it all mean? For me, it's 1010. For Marie, it's 333. Do you have uh, Owen in the other room? Do you have, uh, is there a time prompt for you? What is it? Mine is uh, 1251. It's actually a reference to a song by The Strokes. I don't know if you know that band. I'm familiar with the band The Strokes, right? Yeah, they have that one song. It's called 1251. And after I heard that for the first time, I actually started seeing that everywhere. Interesting. Do you play it in the lottery? And that adds up to nine. (laughs) Oh, it adds up to nine. And it adds up to nine. What do you know? There you go, that number nine, boy. Woo. <laughs> Seems like everybody's got their own, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, definitely. The theoretical physicists, people like you know Stephen Hawking or the great m- mathematical minds of uh, Einstein, uh, did I mean, did they did they ever talk about this? Did they have a maybe an, a deeper understanding of what this was about? How how numbers were sort of the I don't know part of the fa- the uh, the architecture of the universe. Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, obviously, you know, mathematics is the language of the universe. And I've often heard it said that if we were to contact an alien civilization or vice versa, they would not speak to us in words, but in mathematical ratios and and, uh, different numbers. And it's what's what's really interesting is that the existence of the universe itself could possibly come down to just a handful of very intricate, very specific mathematical ratios that were they tweaked plus or minus in either direction at the very, very slightest, we would not exist. The universe would not exist. Galaxies would not exist. And one of my most favorite books that my father gave me to read was a book called Just Six Numbers, written by Sir Martin Rees, who was um, the Royal Society Research Professor at Cambridge. He was the Astronomer Royal. He wrote a book literally about six very specific mathematical ratios that literally describe, uh, you know, 
every aspect of how the universe and how life came into being biologically and chemically. And even down to the teeny tiniest, most infinitesimal change, uh, we would not be here. There would not be life. And another uh, term for this is the Goldilocks principle, the idea that, you know, something is too hot, too cold. Oh, no, it's just right. And uh, another physicist, Paul Davies, wrote a book about this principle that the universe and life itself and, and the planets and everything that led to us being here was all a matter of mathematical processes and ratios that were just right, like a cosmic code that was so is so intelligent and so intricate and so sophisticated that it led to and has led to and continues to lead to a lot of physicists believing in intelligent design. And it's not necessarily intelligent design in a particular god of any of a, a certain religion, but the idea that whatever is at the heart of creation is intelligent. It has uh, the capacity to function like a, a giant brain, and many people believe a giant computer. So it's just really fascinating when you, you begin to understand how People say, oh, well, it's all random, and maybe so, but that randomness in all of the infinite universes that are possibly out there, you know, in our universe, it it really hit it with the patterns enough so that everything happened just precisely the right way that it should, Right. so right. that the porridge was just perfect. And it's just so fascinating to think how, you know, how could it be that? that's sophisticated and not have a mind behind it. Right, right. Uh, you, you talk about the great astrologer um, uh, Kepler in, in the book, and he, the way that he sort of melded his understanding of, of ast- astrological principles with theology and, and uh, the idea that, again, it comes back to a divinely inspired geometrical reality, reality to the universe. It sounds almost Masonic, yeah, that's interest, an interesting way to put it, and it, it kind of relates to uh, the belief in sacred geometry, that as above, so below, that we, what happens in the heavens is mirrored here in, on earth, and not only that, but that we could actually construct our temples and monuments and, and roads and churches and, edu- you know, build buildings to reflect that, and not only reflect it, but maybe even absorb some of the power of the cosmos here on an earthly level. So you start talking about science, but it's getting really metaphysical in there. Right, right. It's getting really woo-woo. But this is, you know, this is one of those areas where science and spirituality absolutely seem to come together. And they come together in in numbers, in mathematical ratios, and measurements, and sacred geometry, sacred measurements, things that you know, by themselves might sound totally spiritual without any science in them, and yet they really do have a, a foundation of science and mathematics. There's an equation on Stephen Hawking's tombstone. What does it mean? 
Oh, gosh. You stumped me on that one. Now, if it's in the book, I actually have to go find it. Well, that's, I didn't mean to stump, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I mean, the idea that he, I find it interesting that that would be his, you know, his epitaph would be an equation. I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't expect you to under, you know, to necessarily unravel or climb inside Stephen Hawking's mind. But isn't that interesting that he would put a, a math, well, mathematical equation? Because he was a, you know, a, my father was a geophysicist, but he was still a physicist, and gosh, that's that's like their language. So probably the most complex. Uh, theory that Stephen Hawking, I know right before he died, he released a very important paper that had to do with, uh, 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 I think it was gravity. But, you know, to these scientists, the most important things that they're working on are trying to sort of unravel the mysteries of the universe. And that would include trying to figure out a very specific mathematical equation that maybe they're stumped on. So I don't know. I kind of, I kind of think that that's, that sounds perfect rather than something funny or witty, you know? Right, right. I, I thought maybe, I don't know, he was leaving a parting message and this is the key. We'll come back. Maybe it is. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back and discuss further. Marie Jones, The Time Prompt Phenomenon. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Just a few moments remain with Marie Jones, co-author of 1111, The Time Prompt Phenomenon. I want to move away from 11 for a moment. Uh, The number 13. Of course, there is, you know, our fear of uh, the number 13, and there are a number of theories about that. Uh, And 13, it appears... Um, I'm trying to think of the uh, the example. Is it on the back of the um, the dollar bill? The 13 steps on the pyramid, and uh, the the motto above the pyramid has 13 letters. No, uh, uh, no 13th floor in the hotel. Yeah, that's right. That's right. 13 <laughs> stars appear on the eagle's head on the dollar. Uh, 13 stripes on the shield. What's is is I don't know. Is that a, a conspiracy? Are they messing with our minds? What's going on there with 13? Well, there's a lot of unusual numbers that have aspects like that. One that I'd like to get in real quick, 666. Oh, yes. Have to talk about that one. Actually a good number in China. But if you add 666 together, guess what number you get? Nine. My favorite, nine. Okay, (laughs) so back to 13. Um, 13 has a lot of symbolism because of things like, uh, you know, Christ had his 12 apostles and with him, you have 13. The Zodiac, there are 12 signs. Then there's the unification number. Just add another, so you've got 13. Um, it, 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 it adds up to number four. Number four is actually not a big lucky number or important number. It is to the Native Americans. They believe in the four winds, the four corners, the four elements. But the number 13 itself, really, uh, it just, there were... It was actually thought to be evil, um, and that you know anybody associated with it was a witch or a pagan healer, and uh, it really is mentioned many times in the Bible, in the Book of Genesis. Uh, it's it's a number that we see, you know, like you said, thirteen stripes on the shield, thirteen war arrows in the eagle's right talon. This is just on the dollar bill, the olive branch 
uh, in the eagle's left talon has 13 leaves. So it's definitely, I think, a uh, Masonic number, possibly, hmm. that uh, that maybe has um, some symboli- symbolism to the Freemasons. I'm actually writing a book next year, early next year. It will supposedly be the definitive book on Freemasons, and I know that they were very much into uh, the number 33 and 13 and 11, so I'll be able to learn a lot more than that. But, you know, number seven has always been considered a lucky number. It shows up everywhere in the Bible and, you know, with different religions mentioned seven and in so many different ways. And so right. it just really depends. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you covered the number 23 in the book, but uh, I remember that movie that came out early 2000s, I think with Jim Carrey and about this character that was obsessed. He saw the number 23 wherever he went. And it turns out the 23, there's a lot of crazy stuff going on with that number. Yeah. We wrote a little bit about it. Um, the 23 enigma and the belief that all events revolving around the number 23, as you saw in the movie, um, you know, is somehow had, it, that number had a, a personal uh, meaning for Jim Carrey's character. But we think the source came from the Illuminatus trilogy, hmm. which I haven't read, but I, I probably should. Robert Anton Wilson's Illuminatus trilogy has pretty much created so many um, fictional stories that we take to be true here in the United States, which is, which is really interesting. But one of the characters, Captain Clark, his ship and crew met with a terrible fate after 23 years. The piloted flight number 23 was sent to find them. Almost sounds like flight ni- uh, 19 right. in the Bermuda Triangle. Right. Um, so we that seems to be where the number 23 enigma came from. Apparently in Discordian philosophy, all events can be traced to the number 23 based on the ingenuity of the interpreter. Hmm. So that means if you're clever enough, you can find a way to attach the number 23 to any significant event in your life. And that kind of goes back to our first question of do these time prompts have meaning um, are they just tricks of the brain? Is the meaning there, or is it a construct of the person's imagination? And I, I, I do believe that it's a combination of the two. Right, right. Well, uh, yeah, this twenty-three enigma is so popular. I mean, there's a there's a Facebook page for twenty-thirdians. They're called twenty-thirdians. Uh, these are oh, people how who are funny. who are fascinated <laughs> with the number, uh, and they see the, they make all of these connections between Michael Jordan, I guess that was his number, uh, to Groucho Marx, uh, William F. Burroughs. Uh, it, I mean, it gets pretty con- convoluted, but if you follow along, yeah, the, you know, the number 23, this fixation is, uh, right. is remarkable. And yet the number 24, which we kind of threw in there to show that every number can have so many different associations. If you're, if you're looking for them, the number 24 has you know, many different uh, unusual aspects about it, 24 hours in a day, 24 ribs in the human body. Um, you know, it's the number of both the modern classical Greek alphabet. There are 24 perfect numbers. 24 is the largest number divisible by all numbers less than its square root, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So really you pick a number, just pick a number and 
you, if you do a little bit of research, should be able to find a number of associations that make that number meaningful. And again, I think it's our brains just really wanting to uh, find some order out of the chaos of numbers. Do you uh, do you believe? Uh, I mean, do you? I don't know if I would say you would live accordingly, but do, I mean, do you put any credence, let's say, in in numerology in the sense, like if you, the Pythagorean creed, if you take your letters of your name and it becomes out to a number, and let's say you you turn out Marie D. Jones, it comes out to a four, let's say, and that says something about you. Uh, given you know what you know now about numbers, and after researching the book, what do you think about numerology? You know, I've been reading about it quite a bit, and I do think, like astrology, numerology, and, you know, any any other sort of divination system, there is an art and there is a science to it. I, I know that you have to use your full birth name, and you use your birth date and location in astrology, you use your your full birth name and numerology. And what, what I think is important about that is that the time of birth and the name that we are given, those hold symbolic meanings, names especially. So I had two charts done, two numerology charts done, one with my full married name that I had before I got divorced and one with my birth name. And I came out to two different numbers and the interesting thing is, one was four, one was six, and they both really fit me. Hmm. So, you know, um, but I'm also a Libra, and that doesn't really fit me quite that much. So, I think it's you ascribe a lot of meaning to a chart that you might get read for yourself. But I do also think that they can surprise you if the person reading the chart or doing your chart is very good at their job. Um, yeah, I, I believe that there's something to where you were when you were born. I believe there was something to the name that your parents chose to give you. Well, um, it's I also uh, sorry, it's oh, go ahead. just going to wrap up here, but I just want to say it regardless, you know, what side of the fence you're on. It's a fascinating read. Numbers are uh, such fun and incredibly mysterious. And uh, so we have 1111, the time prompt phenomenon. Mary uh, Jones, thank you so much for hanging out. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right. My thanks to Owen Wolf. Back next week with Canada's Edgar Casey, the man with X-ray eyes. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.